Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Richard's hosting today. Once again, after a Mother's Day hiatus, we spent the weekend with uh, Grandma, our father's mother, and they need love too. So we were uh, not only honored to have that opportunity, but also to have you covering for us, Peter. Thank you very much for the, uh, I guess, assist in that regard. You, Bo, and Adrian did a fantastic job. We're honored to have you in uh, the ministry with us. Uh, hopefully you were all blessed in the time that was spent over the weekend, but note the purpose and role of the program has not changed. We will be taking your sincere Bible questions for the next hour, so we will be looking forward to receiving them from you if they are in that format, sincere Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to do so at calvarychristianfellowship.com. That is our church website, and noting that is where we primarily want you to meet with us. Our YouTube and Facebook pages are Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and A Reason for Hope, but if for whatever reason we are taken down, what we can't control when or why we are taken off of those platforms, but if we are not taken off, or rather not broadcasting at the usual time, for whatever reason, and it's not due to the technical ineptitude of the host, we will still be live and on the air on our website, which is where we want you to engage with us. To engage with us there, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, click on the Watch Live tab on the purple bar at the top of the screen. We'll be able to engage with you there. And we'll be looking forward to meeting with you. And note as well, if you want to join us on YouTube, once again, it is a reason for hope. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is Facebook. And if you want to send us your questions over Twitter, it's Scott R4H. The questions that we will be receiving for the next hour will be sincere Bible questions, as long as they fit that criteria. They are sincere, they are about the Bible, and they are in the form of a question. We'll be looking forward to engaging with you for the next hour. Note as well, if you want to join us or know when to join us, it will be um, Mountain Standard Time from 5 to 6 p.m. every weekday. And note as well, Pacific Standard Time in the U.S. if we aren't interrupted by Daylight Savings Time. We're looking forward to engaging with you, but before we say anything, we want to make sure God speaks more than we do. So why don't we start off with a word of prayer? Dad, thank you that we have the chance to not only be in your word, but to relate to you entirely on the basis of mercy. It is on that basis we ask that your name would be glorified your word would go forth, your people would be blessed, and your heart would be as well. Thank you that we have the honor of being a part of this work, and I ask that you would not only cause your word to go out, but your people to be blessed in receiving it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting us off on the broadcast today, we received a question from the elder. Uh, For those of you who are still following pjmedia.com, there was an article written by an individual whom I'm familiar, Ibrahim uh, is his last name. Raymond Ibrahim is his full name. And uh, he basically comments, uh, given his area of expertise on Islamic history and Islamic doctrine, uh, the words of one of the most influential Muslims in the world, the Grand Imam Sheikh Ahmed Al-Taib. And he, of course, speaking at a Muslim university, made the following observations, and we wanted to comment on them. Uh, this was at the end of Ramadan, of course, and he made the following observation. Just a few years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, he gives his honorarium, the Islamic conquest, or Futihat, the openings, 
caused the two most powerful empires that divided and controlled every corner of the Middle East to collapse and their lands in Iraq, Syria, and Egypt, and North Africa to become Islamic lands to this very day. That is true. And he went on to say these Muslim conquests were not conquests of colonialization that rely on the methods, excuse me, I was about to laugh there, of plunder, oppression, control, and the policies of domination and dependency, all of which leave nations in ruin. Yes, Islamic conquests were not like this, dominating peoples and controlling them with the arrogance of force and weapons. Rather, they led a into a new avalanche of life full of knowledge, justice, freedom, and equality, which flowed in the veins of the once powerless people. Now, all good humor aside, we're just going to pretend he wasn't deliberately lying by all of this. We want you to be able to hear the other side of the argument by making a few recommendations. First of all, the writer of the response article on pjmedia.com wrote an excellent overview of Islamic history and the the Sword and the Scimitar is what it's called by Raymond Ibrahim, that's with an I. If you want a more secular source on the history of this time, we'd also recommend In the Shadow of the Sword. And as well, if you want to uh, receive this information from a source that we know, love, and trust, we'd also recommend uh, History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS by Robert Spencer. He came out with that. Uh, along with his critical Quran, which includes the historical context and, uh, I guess, historical criticism that is long overdue from those sources. What's interesting about all this, and why we want to draw attention to it, isn't to be polemical about Islam, unless you'd like us to. The goal of this broadcast is obviously to bring our attention on the Bible. So, Peter, first handing this off to you, setting up this question properly, we don't want to talk about the whole issues concerning whether or not this imam is lying. Let's just pretend what he says is something he believes is true. We'll let the audience do their historical homework and conclude whether or not he's telling the truth. What we want to do is to essentially narrow down the real issue at heart. We're here to talk about the Bible. So what does the Bible have to say, specifically regarding it being imperialistic? Is Christianity meant to be this political force like Islam is not only made out to be, but continues to be to this day? Are we supposed to expand our borders? Are we, as the Imam said, supposed to be revitalizing these societies at a government level? Or, on the other hand, and this is uh, kind of the Hail Mary I'm trying to, or I guess the layup I'm trying to set up for you here, set up the actual issue. What's actually being discussed here? What does Christianity, what does its sources actually say as opposed to Islam, uh, Muhammad being its founder, compared to that of Jesus Christ? And we're talking about the actual definitions of what our church is supposed to be. Is it in any way comparable to the Islamic Ummah, their community, meant to conquer from sea to shining sea? That's a really interesting question. Uh, not only when we're answering our Muslim friends who are going to say that, yes, you know, Islam spread in a very peaceful way, and it is you Christians who are violent and bloodthirsty, look at the Crusades and the Inquisitions and things like that, but also for our atheistic friends who are going to come at us and say, well, all religion is bloodthirsty and awful, and it's the source of all the ills of mankind. And if you just look at history, religion has spawned all these wars, spawned all this terrible oppression, bloodshed, slavery, all these things. And if we want to be more evolved and more reasonable, we have to shed the shackles of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and all the like, and instead just be people run by reason and intellect instead of faith. 
So if I'm going to answer both the atheistic objection and the Christian, uh, I'm sorry, the Islamic objection, I need to be able to deal with both. I need to be able to differentiate and say, what is the difference between Christians who engaged in types of warfare throughout the Middle Ages and places like that, as well as the types of warfare that we see contained in Islam and even the types of warfare we see contained in the Old Testament in Judaism. So um, for Christianity, the first and most important thing to understand about it is it's not primarily a political ideology. So when Jesus sets up his church, he could have very easily set up a political entity that was very specific, like Sharia law, like the Islamic State. Instead, he doesn't. He does everything he can not to do that. On the night of his crucifixion, Peter actually tries to start a bloody revolt by striking the high priest's servant, Malchus, and Jesus stops him, and he actually heals the ear of Malchus that Peter struck off, and he says that he need, you need to sheathe your sword. You know, this is, I'm, I'm basically born into this. Now, later on, he goes and speaks with Pontius Pilate, and he specifically says to him again, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, that's a very key distinction. What Jesus is saying is he did not actually come to set up a political kingdom on this earth. He's going to do that in his second coming, not his first. Instead, he's going to give us the ideologies of the kingdom of heaven that we're supposed to live unto and honor God through those particular ideologies. That's the whole purpose of what Jesus came to do in his first coming. So as a Christian, we're actually not supposed to spread and we're expressly forbidden uh, spreading our religion, spreading our ideology through the sword. We're instead supposed to be sharing the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God to other people and converting them that way. Islam is very different. That's not what Muhammad set up. So in Surah 9, which is one of the last uh, chapters of the Quran that Muhammad was given, uh, just a little recap for those who don't know much about the Quran, the Quran was not given in chronological order. It's not like Surah 1 is the first thing that Muhammad ever received, and then you get to the end of the book and you see a nice chronological order of commands. That's yeah, not the first, it. The first few verses of Surah 96 are where the Quran begins. Surah 1, many Muslims believe that that wasn't supposed to be in the yeah. Quran. It was a prayer. And Surah 9, that would be not the last surah, but the last major surah. That's right. So it's actually not chronologically delineated, but by length. So <laughs> surah 9 is pretty long, so it's towards the beginning of it, but it was actually chronologically one of the last ones that he gave. So this is kind of the marching orders that Muhammad is giving to his people. Now this is what he says about the spread of their religion. Surah 9, and I believe this is verse 27, uh, Muhammad speaking here, he says, Truly the pagans are unclean, so let them not, after this year of theirs, approach the sacred mosque. And if ye fear poverty, soon Allah will enrich you. So that sounds pretty cool. He's like, Allah's going to give you guys some cash. Well, how's it going to happen? If he wills, out of his bounty, for Allah is all-knowing and all-wise. Fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of the truth, even if they are, of the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. The Jews said Ezra is the son of God, and the Christians said the Messiah is the son of God. These are the statements out of their mouths. They emulate the statements of those who blasphemed before. May God assail them how deceived they are. So Muhammad is laying out, not only we're going to spread our religion imperialistically, but those who do not receive these commands, we're going to subjugate them and have a specific tax that will enrich us called the jizya. This is also laid out in the Hadith literature, which is not just 
the um, not just the Quran for the the Muslims are their sacred text, but also the Hadith, which tells us about the sayings and the activities of Muhammad, because the Quran itself says that Muhammad is a pattern of conduct for all mankind. In Sunanim and Majah, this is again the Hadith literature. It says, uh, "Fight in the name of Allah and in the cause of Allah. Fight those who disbelieve in Allah." Fight, uh, do not be treacherous, do not steal from the spoils of war, do not mutilate, do not kill the children. When you meet your enemy from among the polytheists, call them to one of three things. And he basically sets out the three things being giving them attacks and surrendering or conquest. Now, this is important because in ancient times, you didn't want to get through all the messiness of uh, bloody conquest, but sometimes you wanted to subdue the particular uh, organization you would subdue the particular government that you were going into and through subduing them through actually putting them underneath your control all you'd really be asking of them is you don't resist us you fight on our behest if we go to war and if um, and you have to pay some sort of a tax some sort of a penalty tax to us at the time that we conquer you now, this is reinforced in many other places of the Hadith. Those of you guys who aren't too up on Islamic texts, Islam does not just have like one central text like uh, Christianity where we have the Bible. Islam not only has a central text, namely the Quran, the, uh, they also follow the Hadith, which is literature that discusses the sayings and the teachings of Muhammad himself. The reason why that's so important is because the Quran itself says that Muhammad is a pattern of conduct unto all mankind so it's very important for muslims to study not only what the quran says which is the direct speech of allah but also to study the life and the sayings of their prophet so this is one of the books of hadith uh one of the most important books of hadith by the way uh sahih al-bukhari this is 3159 through 3160 those of you guys who want to look that up on your own time and I'm gonna skip some stuff here and there because it's very lengthy <laughs> and I don't have time to get into it right now but this is again speaking about translating or interpreting the Quran verse in Surah 9 now this is what he says our Prophet the messenger of our Lord has ordered us to fight you till you worship Allah alone or give jizya ie tribute and our Prophet has informed us that our Lord says whoever amongst us is killed ie martyred he shall go to paradise to lead such a luxurious life as he has never seen. And whoever is amongst us remains alive shall become your master. That kind of sounds like he is saying that they are engaging in conquest. They are taking war booty. They are taking uh, looted treasures from the peoples that are being conquered. And they are getting some sort of an exorbitant tax from them on the basis of what they believe not being Muslim. So there is an imperialistic head and there are the oppressed classes of the subjugated groups. That's right. Now, which is according to the Imam, a let me uh, get the exact quote here just to kind of salt the wound, to give them a new avalanche full of knowledge, justice, freedom, and equality flowing in the veins of those once powerless people by making them powerless, impoverished, and persecuted on the basis of their beliefs. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, absolutely a misinterpretation of it. Now, why, why does he defend it? Now, interestingly, Christians don't tend to unjustly defend the actions of Christians throughout history. We fully acknowledge that many Christians throughout history have done some pretty horrible things. 
Now, I think that some of our history has been overblown and taken out of context. You can't really say, for instance, that what the Christians of their time were doing uh, during the time of the Crusades was totally unjustifiable. Uh, a lot of the Crusades were actually defensive wars against the Muslims, ironically. Well, the first <laughs> Crusade was essentially a military-escorted pilgrimage so they could repair the Church of the Holy Sepulchre when it was damaged by, ironically enough, Muslim Muslims, occupiers. Yeah. They couldn't safely make the pilgrimage, so they needed a military escort. An uh, individual by the name of Peter the Hermit decided to go ahead of his military escort, and they got butchered. But the point being made in the black mark on history that Christians should be aware of is that when they gathered these military forces and escorts, A, majority of them weren't Christians, B, they were recruited on unchristian or unbiblical grounds, and C, when they were ultimately asked the question, so how are we going to get paid? To a point, the church could accommodate them through their I guess, uh, tax-slash-indulgence system, but they were also given leeway to gather plunder the same way that the Romans did centuries before. Exactly. They would target cities and loot and burn them to the ground, and unfortunately, uh, Count Aleppo, I believe his name was, don't quote me on that, I'll verify in a minute, but a count who was leading one of these military excursions specifically targeted Jewish cities because they were more financially prosperous. It's also worth noting that they resorted to cannibalism during a famine when they were making the rounds across the edge of the Mediterranean Sea into what we call modern-day Lebanon and eventually Judea or uh, Palestine back then. And, of course, when they were able to break the siege walls of Jerusalem, they targeted civilian shelters as well as military and burned specifically synagogues to the ground with people still inside. We do not excuse the behavior. We quote our Bibles in condemning them, and we note that if Christ were amongst that military. Uh, first of all, the battle would have been over before it started, and secondly, there would have been no such actions or behaviors. That's right. So as Christians, we could easily condemn the actions and activities of fellow Christians. We have no need to defend them. Muslims are in a very interesting position where they have to defend, <laughs> they have to defend their prophet, and they have to defend the original caliphate because that was what the prophet set up. That's how the empire definitely spread. And they also have to defend some of these sayings throughout their texts. They know how ugly these things sound, especially in modern society. And so they kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. They mess with them in order to help people look at Islam as more of a peaceful religion as opposed to an imperialistic one. Because here's the important thing. The reason why we are against imperialism today is because of Christian ethics and the Christian worldview. Meaning imperialism has never been condemned in world history anywhere, ever. That was the norm throughout the ages. And in fact, in certain places, it's still the norm. That's why, you know, we get so offended when Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine in an imperialistic move. And we're like, how could anyone do that? That's just so uncivilized. And I don't understand. That is how human beings have always lived. What he's doing is normal. What we're doing is abnormal. Right? We're doing something very strange in human history of abstaining from imperialistic conquest. We're not going into these countries. We're not conquering them. I fought in Afghanistan. It wasn't an imperialistic conquest. If we wanted it to be, that war would have been over really, really quick. I fought in one of the most, one of the largest invasions in that war. We went into a city called Marja and we fought the Taliban. It took us three days to wipe all of them out. That was, it was a very short battle. <laughs> the reason why, and we lost, I think we lost about five guys in my battalion. Uh, we killed hundreds of Taliban soldiers because we just so vastly outmatched them technologically. 
if we wanted to conquer Afghanistan, if we wanted to conquer Iraq, if we wanted to conquer Syria, we would have done it. It would have been so much easier than what we did. In fact, a lot of my, me and my buddies were like, why aren't we conquering this country? You know, why are we allowing them to continue to run it? This is making everything so much more difficult. Why aren't we coming down with a hammer? Why are we trying to win hearts and minds? We didn't understand it because it makes it really, really difficult to actually occupy a country without having any political authority in that country. It makes it very tough to deal with their military and their police force when you're trying to fight a war. So believe me, if we could have, if we, if we, it was morally or ethically acceptable, acceptable within our country, we would have done it. We didn't do it because of Christian ethics has taught us that imperialism is wrong. Islam, because it is rooted in Muhammad, who was a seventh century caravan raider, he was essentially like a pirate, this guy is the one who actually establishes not only the text of the Quran, but also the pattern of conduct for all mankind for all time. Uh, Islam cannot escape their imperialism because it's rooted in an imperialist. It's rooted in an imperialistic guy. And just so that everyone's understanding, the reason why we've kind of lost our taste for imperialism is because of two very interesting acronyms, World War One and World War Two. World War One began as essentially a powder keg being set off when the German expansion under Otto von Bismarck was trying to reunite all of these provinces. And in order to stop that imperialistic expansion, more blood was shed than had ever been seen in history. Now note, it wasn't just German expansion. There were some saber-rattling going on in other places. But note that the same thing started off World War II, especially in Europe, when uh, Adolf Hitler started expanding once again. He made his annexation into Poland and started to make grounds to take over Europe, Japan doing the same thing into China and Korea. When we're talking about these issues, though, we need to understand the idea and the mindset behind conquest has never been a Christian one. Right. It is an individual-by-individual individual basis, not a political or ideological expansion. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, real quick about Judaism, because some people will say, well, Judaism is imperialistic. Not well, in it's, the it's really not. Uh, if Judea Again, if Judaism was an imperialistic religion, you would not see a Palestine. <laughs> you, would not see a you would not see a Syria. You would not see a Lebanon. You would not see Yemen. You would not see Jordan. All these Saudi areas. Saudi Arabia would be half its mass. That's right. <laughs> Turkey wouldn't exist. Every time Israel has been, and by the way, they have fought defensive wars. They have not fought offensive conquest wars. They have been fought. It's the time of Uzziah. That's right. To be annihilated. That was the intent of these invasions that have happened throughout their history. Every time they have been invaded during their recent history, uh, since the 1900s, they have won easily. They have decimated their opponents, and they have had to give back land that they have actually taken. Right? <laughs> there's, there's a reason why they do this. So uh, that's just an obvious one. But again, if you go through the Old Testament, what you see is that God relegated the capacity of Israel to a specific land mass. He's saying, yes, you could conquer this land mass because it's my land. I own it. 
I have certain decrees over the way it's going to be governed, and uh, the nations that are currently governing it are pretty satanic and evil. They, are they have been given warnings, centuries of warnings. They have rejected those warnings. Now you're the consequences. If you are also going to follow their behavior, you can revisit the Deuteronomy. Yeah. You're going to get the same consequences. Which and by the way, is over, the same <laughs> <laughs> over the same period of time, they were given centuries of warnings and second chances. But if we note what was told to Abraham in Genesis 15, that from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, so that would encompass the majority of the northern Middle East, belonged to Israel, did they ever take that over and prescribed borders, not expanding ones. Right. No, they never even achieved their own empire. Right. They, they didn't even achieve what God had for them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, no, uh, Judaism is not imperialistic. That's why, again, you do not see them fighting imperialistically throughout the Bible. Once they achieved the land that God had for them, and like Sean said, they could have actually gone further they just never did. Now, that was just laziness on their part, but they, they could have gone a little bit further, but they would have never gone beyond the borders that God had set out for them. That was something that God expressly forbade them from doing. So, it, no, it is not an imperialistic religion, whereas, again, so with Israel, with Judaism, you had a set amount of imperialism which God allowed for a specific purpose, but there was a stopping point. He would say, you cannot go beyond this point. With Islam, there is no such point. There is no point in which a Muslim would say, yeah, we've conquered enough land. In fact, they are taught not to. They are taught, again, I don't have time to go through all the Hadith literature right now, but if you go through the Hadith, the call of the Muslim is to spread throughout the globe this way. That is how Islam is going to st uh, have dominance around the globe. It is imperialistic. It is uh, a religion that is to be spread by the sword. Now, does that mean that every Muslim uses that tactic? No. No more than every Christian models the character of Christ. That's right. So it's not that every Muslim is going to do that, and a lot of Western Muslims don't even know this stuff. <laughs> it's because there's a lot to read, and they just haven't gotten around to it. And some of them that do know it, they kind of are more like the progressive Christians today, where they're just like, ah, you know, I, I know it says it, but it's just not what I'm going to do. I had a really good relationship with a Muslim imam uh, teaching out of uh, the, the mosque at the U of A campus. We had a good two-year-long relationship where we interacted on these things. And he was a PhD student, and he was writing his thesis on the idea that Muslims today should not be imperialistic. Now, the interesting thing about his thesis, I actually, I asked him, I was like, can I go to your doctoral dissertation? Can I hear you, you speak on this? And he was like, absolutely. So I came and I, I heard him speak on it. His argument was actually not what these Muslims are doing. He was more honest. He's like, no, we, we had a bloody past but we need to move beyond that. So his idea is, okay, we, we've done these things, but I believe that the central teaching of Islam is not the, as, uh, as uh, he would put it, uh, if you guys want more clarity on this, I could get into it. But he said, we shouldn't be looking at Muhammad's Medinan period. We should be looking at his Meccan period. That was the earlier period where Muhammad didn't have any political power. And he says, that is how we're going to spread Islam. It's through the means of Muhammad's uh, minority prophet status, not when he was a political leader. That's how we're going to spread Islam. Now, unfortunately, he did leave room where if an official caliphate was set up, he was like, yeah, Muslims would have to follow that. 
So his only argumentation for why they shouldn't is because there's no official caliphate. Uh, if there was a caliphate, he said, yeah, basically, we would, we would follow that and we would allow it to go imperialistically. So I thank God for Muslims like that. I thank God that there are Muslims who aren't violent, who aren't trying to kill me, but it is rooted in their text. And that is, again, very different than Christianity, very different than Judaism. So any, anything you'd like to uh, add to that before we move into the questions? Just to reiterate, for the sake of those listening and were unable to hear us because of new factors introduced, the best way to understand Islam is not through Muslims any more than understanding Christianity comes by Christians. It starts with their book and it continues with their man. If you want an honest and historical overview, we once again would recommend the in the the, the author who responded to this fraudulent imam's article on PJTV, Raymond Ibrahim, and his book is in the, sh uh, the Sword and the Scimitar. If you would like a more secular historical resource, an easy read in the Shadow of the Sword. And of course, if you want a familiar one, one that we wholeheartedly recommend and trust, History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. But when it also comes to answering this question, the best way to deal with it is the same way any objection or claim is made about Christians historically. Is that Jesus? And it stops and ends there. But if they say, well, no, if every Christian ever has followed this way, well, I'm in that mix and I'm not conquering anybody, but let's just make sure we're consistent with the thought process. Remember who defines our religion. For Islam, it was the prophet, so-called and claimed, who was the living Quran, who was the Quran, of course, was the revelation from Allah to mankind, unsane, forbidden, and permitted, or halal and haram. So when we're talking about what a religion is and what it isn't, make sure that it goes back to its founder and its sources, not on its modern, and I say that again very loosely because there are still Muslims who are smart enough to read today and also sincere enough to follow the adherence of the book and their founder make sure that it goes back to those sources because there is a reason terrorism still is happening and it's going to continue unless we can get to the bottom of it and also note as well sin is going to continue <laughs> unless our Lord gets to the bottom of that from our hearts as well we aren't dealing with the real problem so with all that said we want to go out to your questions uh, there's an interesting one starting us off from Justin he wants to know, uh, regarding Cain's wife, was it his niece or a sister? Isn't this an abomination? I'm having trouble with this question. I walked through some of the basics on this, and he's still having trouble, so let's go through it. When it comes to moral laws and moral prohibitions, there's two things we first need to understand when it comes to what a law is and isn't. A law is supposed to govern behavior. Moral prohibition or moral encouragement is meant to align your nature or your character or your behavior with that of God's. If I'm doing something moral, it means I'm acting more like God. If I'm doing something lawful, it means I'm doing it in line with the, the uh, permits and the preventions of the state. Those two things can be different, but in the case of Israel, they were one and the same, at least 1,450 years ago. But when we're talking about the laws given to Israel, we go to Leviticus chapter 18 and indeed read that if someone were to approach the nakedness, that's a euphemism in this context for approaching them sexually, someone who is near of kin, this is starting in verse 6 and going all the way to verse 18, regarding someone who is a fourth cousin in modern terms. That would be considered unlawful. We are, I guess, uh, 
unnerved by incest today because we take this Judeo-Christian ethic for granted, but the point being made is the same one we made in World Wars 1 and 2, because now there are serious consequences, and there's a reason why we lose taste for it. When it comes to, however, and this is the crux of the matter, the prohibition made 1450 B.C., by Moses to the nation of Israel, and you say, well, someone in biblical history practiced incest. Isn't this an abomination? Well, if it happened afterwards, it would be unlawful, and it's called an abomination by God, so it's in conflict with his nature. But notice the two details that you gave us, Justin. First of all, Cain, not a godly example, but B, you note in the book of Genesis, Cain knowing his wife and producing offspring is given to us in Genesis chapter 4. Now, you are just as much aware of this as I am, that in Genesis chapter 4, that took place before Leviticus chapter 18. In fact, it took place before Exodus chapter 1. In fact, it took place before Genesis chapter 5. <laughs> so we're noting chronology is important. Something isn't breaking the law if the law hasn't been written yet. The book of Romans emphasizes this as well as Hebrews. But if on the other hand we ask, well, isn't it a violation of God's nature? Well, God's not a sexual being, so he can't really violate that. His intention was one man, one life, one lifetime. That's given in Genesis chapter 2. But all that being said, what was the case for Genesis chapter 4, and why was it that Cain took a near relative? Why is it that we're deducing that? Well, first of all, no one, left, no one else on the planet in Genesis chapter 2, or chapter 3, rather, at the end of it, we note that Eve was given that name because she was the mother of all living. So if Cain were to marry an offspring of Eve, and he himself was a near offspring of Eve, it would have been, as you deduced, a sister or a niece. Why is that not repulsive? Well, first of all, it is to us today, but I'm not arguing by the clock. The reason why it was prohibited at the time of Moses was because of another deduction we're making, or induction rather, into the text. First of all, we're understanding that pre-fall, people lived a lot longer than we do, which means their bodies functioned a lot differently than we do. They were in a world that functioned a lot differently before the flood and after. I can't examine the, you know, genetical, uh, you know, crossword puzzle that results in all of the complications that happen today, because I only have post-flood, post-fall, and very much heavily mutated genomes that are reproducing with people today. But if on the other hand, we're going to note, your Bible mentions in Leviticus 18, incest, any relative. No, it mentions to a certain generation. We gave you the verses, and again, I'll do it again. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 through 18. Note these near relatives are, in fact, forbidden. Why? Well, we could note biologically today it's because it makes the risk of genetic birth defects much more likely to happen. And we know that these get worse and worse every single generation. So taking the same step that we did in Genesis chapter 3, what did we know about Eve? Well, she's the mother of all living. Cain's one of his offspring, or her offspring, rather. And whoever was else was on the planet, a girl, would have also been one of her offspring. We infer incest. Well, what else can we infer? Cain and his wife were at a time biologically that functioned very differently than a time at which Moses was instructing Israel, and a time at which we are introducing and discussing this now today. If we're going to say, well, you're arguing by the clock, you're saying that, oh, so morals, remember that word, not laws, morals change with the times, God's arbitrary, what would be our response to that? Yeah, no, so when we're talking about 
an ethical structure or a moral structure, we have some absolutes, but laws tend to shift based on knowledge or different circumstances. So in other words, we try to gear our laws to uphold the various morals that we've been given. Uh, when you go into the book of Leviticus, uh, there actually really isn't many morals given. There are some very fundamental things like uh, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But for the majority of it, it's actually political law that is used to govern the behavior of Israel. That's why it gets into certain specifics. And that's why it allows for things that aren't exactly moral. For instance, uh, divorce, as well as there is allowance for polygamy within Leviticus. It's still condemned. But there's allowances for it because the people of God at that time were practicing polygamy. So there has to be some sort of a way to govern that behavior since it was already in place. And just so we don't lose track of anyone, Justin, as well, if you're listening, remember you're talking about laws, not morals. Yeah, The allowance right. of something immoral, not in line with the nature of God, but in order to govern Israel, a fallen sinful nation like any other, prohibitions and permissions were made. That's right. So one of the different moral or ethical structures that we could say incest violates is incest violates the desire to have offspring that are given their best chance. So in other words, uh, it's why my wife, even though it's not technically wrong, it's not immoral for my wife to drink caffeine or something like that while she's pregnant, she's not going to do that. Why? Because it might damage the child. So if there's something I can do that has potential to damage my child, it becomes an immoral act because I'm engaging in it with little regard for my child. It would violate the love your neighbor as yourself and to also raise your children <laughs> in a way that honors God. So if, I could, if I'm doing something that raises or heightens the level of chance of harming my child and I do it anyway, that is an immoral act. So... There's no prohibition in the Bible, for instance, there's no law in the Bible about, say, drinking alcohol while someone is pregnant. Yet it is uh, not really, I, I think it is a law in a lot of states to drink alcohol while you're pregnant. I'd have to look that one up to be certain. But I believe that if you, if you do that, then you are actually breaking the law. You're doing something immoral. But note the point is being made again and again because we want this to click home. A law doesn't mean it's moral. That's there right. were laws that dehumanized Jews in 1940 in specific regions of Europe. There are laws that oppress Christians known as the Jizya tax in Muslim right. lands today. But there are morals that are determined not by the law, but by the nature of God. When yeah. Israel was given a law, it was in line with the nature of God, but for what reason? That's what we need to conclude. That's right. So what Sean's doing is he's just using some inductive reasoning and suggesting like, okay, well, if there is this moral, we know that this moral of loving your neighbor as yourself, treating your offspring well, right? That moral was always in place in the book of Genesis as well as the book of Leviticus. But if there was no law given, if there was no commandment given by God at that time, and God set up the world in such a way that they would have had to commit incest, right? Not only at the time of Adam and Eve, but also after the flood, because Noah and his sons would have had to do the same thing. Uh, there was only <laughs> like eight people that lived through the flood. So there's going to be, there's, there has to be necessitated incest that's going to happen. But so again, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, his wife and their wives were what? Pre-fall, pre-flood humans. We don't know how their genetics work. That's we right. only know our genetics. That's right. So... Uh, obviously, God doesn't express explicitly say this in the book of Leviticus because they wouldn't have understood that kind of argumentation back then. But God just 
makes a prohibition about it. And now us looking backward on it can say, oh, that's why God did that. Uh, same with, let's say, the, the cleanly laws in Leviticus. They seem very arbitrary. They seem like, why, why would God have these weird washing rituals uh, repeated for us throughout the Old Testament? Well, now that we understand germ theory, we look back and they're like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Why were they not supposed to eat shellfish? Because right. it's a lot easier to say don't than to tell them proper cooking instructions like this is some <laughs> no, <laughs> bizarre cookbook for shellfish and it so forth. Just <laughs> listen. <laughs> exactly. So all those commandments, they're not actually arbitrary. They are upholding a moral structure. They are all upholding an ethical structure, but they're just doing it in a very particular way. Again, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, treating your body well. These are all ethical principles, and the law is just showing us how do we do that practically. So God is organizing a law that helps him do that. So I hope that helps, but that's essentially the answer. Yeah, again, so Justin, just to rewind this back to the beginning, your confusion is, isn't it an abomination for a man to marry his sister or his niece. Yes, in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 took place after Genesis chapter 4. Well, Genesis chapter 4, Leviticus 18, that's both in the Bible. Are you saying the Bible contradicts itself? Not in order, because there is a difference between a law and a moral imperative. Cain, A, not the most moral guy, he was the first murderer, but B, we don't dismiss the fact that Seth and Abel and the others would have had to do that too. The point being made is this. If we know the information we have, what do we know? There weren't a lot of options at the beginning, and God made provision because there was no other option. He didn't, you know, take from Cain's rib and so forth. That right. would have to be something heavily inferred into the text. We'd have no way of justifying it. We'd end up with egg on our face. Right. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, yeah, this had to happen, what was then the fact of the matter? They weren't breaking any laws because those laws weren't written for another, oh, five to... 4,500 years. On the other hand, if I were to be consistent and say, okay, so then is it moral for you now to marry a near relative? Well, legally in certain states and in Muslim countries and in certain Asiatic countries as well, the law doesn't prohibit it, but God's nature would still say, are you loving your family? Are you making the best provisions for future generations in doing that? And the answer, given modern study in genetics and so forth, would be no. The law of love is what fulfills the law. Hopefully that helps you out, Justin, but just remember that point of emphasis. First, I don't want to get my chronology off. Second, I don't want to confuse laws with morality. A lot of problems can result from that. And the third, if I understand a pre-fall body and a post-fall body, I can't make that comparison because I don't know the difference. I don't make conclusions on what I don't know. I make conclusions on what I do. And what do I know? That the same information they had then is the same information we have now in substance. And that's what? I'm supposed to honor God by my family, by my future, and by my offspring. If that is done by obeying God's law, and if it's obeyed by keeping God's law in line with and in perspective with modern science, then both are fulfilled in that one thing, love your neighbor as yourself, even if they're the next room over. So let us know if that helps you out, Justin. If you need us to go into more detail, I do have no problem making you all uncomfortable. Um, here's a question from Yari, who wants to know, regarding the new heaven and the new earth, will he create it in a similar manner as he did the first? That's an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you asked that question yesterday, Yari. We promised we'd get to it, and now is the time. So uh, we actually don't have much information about specifically how God is going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth. We know that he's going to do it. 
and we know for a certainty that we will precede it. So, in other words, the sons of God, those who are made in the image of God and will be raised with him, we will precede the new heavens and the new earth. We will receive our new creation bodies before God recreates the heavens and the earth. So we Revelation get 21, verse 1, there are still verses. There's an existence before that. Right. Now, if I were to say, oh, but Genesis 1, 1, what existed before us? We aren't told. Right. So when God creates in Genesis, there is a subsequent chronology to how he creates. He creates one thing and then he creates another thing and he creates another thing. We're not really given evidence that he's going to do this again uh, when he creates the new heavens and the new earth. He might. I think that would be kind of cool, but it might just be all at once. We're not really sure. This is the only real verse that gets into it. So Second Peter chapter three, verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So we see this destruction this this violent destruction of the heavens and the earth big and then boom. A, yeah a big boom and then a, a recreation uh, we don't know exactly again if there's going to be like a day one of the new creation a day two of the new creation day three it might it might follow that formula it might not we don't know and, and i think what we can take from the text is there would be no need for it to follow that same pattern why because the structure of god's creation in genesis one was to set out a time structure for us right mm -hmm. six days the seventh day we rest well what happens in the new creation how do we judge time not by god's new creation method like the old earth and the old heavens which have passed away a new fruit will spring from the tree of life every month instead of us focusing on the stars we're going to be focusing on the sun and the stairs leading up to him so <laughs> let us know if that helps you out yari we don't make conclusions on what we don't know as was stated before we want to make sure we make conclusions of what we do Here's a question, we've got some time, uh, from Mac, who wants to know, what is our take on a woman preaching the word? No problem whatsoever, as long as she's teaching it accurately. Now, what's usually assumed by teaching the word is being in a leadership position. Now, let's make sure that we're answering the question, not going off a controversial rabbit trail, unless you want us to, is do people who teach the word have to be in positions of leadership or are there examples of women teaching God's word in the Bible and it just being that women teaching God's word yeah now the reason why Sean's making that distinction is because he's actually dealing with a section of scripture that is most usually quoted in understanding this so this is first Timothy chapter 2 uh, and we're going to start in verse 12 and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with all self-control. So uh, basically when Paul gives those addendums to the end, when he focuses on Adam and Eve being created, and he focuses on the fall, and he focuses on biology, the woman being able to bear children, he is making uh, eternal and multicultural statements. So in other words, these are not meant to be understood in a vacuum where just Timothy and just at the Church of Ephesus and just at that time they were supposed to do that, but we're more evolved, we don't do these things anymore. No, Paul gives three very distinctive reasons to suggest this is for all Christians until Christ's return. Now, some of the ways that you can mistake it, though, is you could read it and say, well, it sounds very clear. 
that he's saying that women can't teach. What Sean's doing, though, is he's going through the Bible and saying, but women do teach. So we see women teaching in the Bible. We see it happening often, actually. A good example of this would be Priscilla and Aquila, the very famous tag team duo of the New Testament in the book of Acts. They were teaching and sharing the gospel together. Uh, we have Lydia, who also we see becoming almost uh, in a leadership role in the early church in the book of Acts. Yeah, founder of a church in her household, whether it was uh, just to provide a platform for apostles. I'm sure they weren't always there, so she had the capacity to read the word just like they would in a synagogue because she, although being a Gentile, was hosting and spending a lot of time with Jews. And it's not wrong for a woman to hold the law, despite what the rabbis <laughs> would tell you. Absolutely. We got the yeah. daughters of Philip who were called prophetesses. Well, we have uh, many prophetesses in yeah. the Bible. We've got um, Anna, who was at yeah. the time of Jesus when he was born and dedicated in the temple. We've got, of course, um, Miriam, the brother, or sister, the brother, <laughs> sister of Moses, <laughs> who Isaiah's was noted. Wife. Yeah, uh, she was called a prophetess as well. We've got interesting figures mentioned throughout the times of the kings and so forth. We've got Ruth, or not Ruth, um, Deborah, who was called a judge mm -hmm. and was sharing the word of God with Israel at that time, telling Barak to obey it, so she had to be sharing it with somebody. Mm -hmm. It's not wrong, despite what the rabbinical traditions would say, let the words of the law be burned, then be touched by a woman. That's from the Bible. Yeah. Not, not from the Bible. That's so not from the Bible. That's <laughs> not from the Bible. <laughs> I am... I can have someone of an excuse. It's been a weekend since <laughs> I've been on. Point being made is this. Along with my ineptitude for handling our audio equipment, let's just make sure that the Bible can be understood for what it says clearly. We look at other passages like Titus chapter 2 where it notes that women likewise are to be teachers of good things, speaking to other women and so forth in ways that a men can't. But the point being made is that I'm not going to come to a conclusion that isn't justified in other texts. If I come to a conclusion that makes nonsense in the Bible, guess who's at fault? But if, on the other hand, I come to conclusions that's at, at not in line with modern sensibilities or the dogmatic interpretations of certain denominations, I'll let them stand or fall before their master. The that's point right. being made is this. I couldn't consistently conclude that a woman can't teach the word. Now, does that mean that a woman should be in a position of leadership? That's another question. That's right. So uh, the way that a lot of people have interpreted it in light of everything that Sean just shared throughout the scriptures is they would say, and I, uh, verse 12 again, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So what a lot of people have interpreted that, and I think there's a lot of justification for this interpretation given everything we've just talked about, is what Paul's actually forbidding is women to be in a position of authority over men. So in other words, to have a high level of authority within the church, because remember, Paul sets up the church as a governing body, right? You have deacons and you have elders, and the elders are actually like officials. They're almost like political officials. They're just who, not elected or anything like that. But who they lead the Christian military to go on imperialistic conquest, no. right? <laughs> no. Uh, but they do have, like I said, it mirrors a very political structure, not only in the way that they're uh, set up in authority, but the way that they delineate God's truth and also how they pass on their authority to others through the laying on of hands. Very interesting structure set up in this the New Testament. What Paul seems to be forbidding is he seems to be forbidding women taking on this high leadership role, the elder role, if you want to put it that way. Um, now, there's, there's, again, a lot of different ways to look at it, but people would say the teaching would be a facet of the elder role. In 1 Timothy 3, which just one chapter later, uh, Paul says that an elder is to be able to teach. So in other words, that it's not that kind of like a square triangle thing, right? 
all I mean I'm sorry square rectangle thing all rectangles are squares but not all squares are rectangles all elders have to teach but not all teachers eld right not all teachers have the eldership title associated with them in the church so Paul seems to be prohibiting women from having this high authority role or an elder role within the early church now there's debate by the way throughout Christian churches there are some churches that would disagree with us and be a little bit more liberal they would say an, a woman can have an elder role. She just can't have the shepherding role. She can't have the uh, ultimate elder role, the head pastor role, if you want to put it that way. Uh, other churches would say, well, she can have a head pastor role as long as there is a board above her. So, for instance, if I'm in a denomination, I can have a female pastor in a position of authority as long as that authority is coming from the denomination that is over her. Uh, some churches see it that way. I'm in disagreement with both of those churches. I don't believe that that's true. The way that Calfrey has always interpreted this is that women cannot have, that's what it's forbidding. They cannot have the elder role. They can teach. They could have, a th they could have uh, levels of authority within the church. We've had women uh, in levels of authority over the children's ministry, over missions, over evangelism, all these kinds of things, but just not the eldership or the overseer role. Other churches are more progressive than us. They'll say, I mean, I'm sorry, not progressive towards what conservative. They're more conservative than us. I just say it that way. And they'll say, no, no, no. This is a total forbidding of any type of authority. Uh, they cannot be in any position of power. But, yeah, they could teach just other women. They can't teach men, things like that. Again, I would disagree with them for the reasons that we just stated. So we're kind of more in the middle. That's how our church interprets it. Before your own master, you stand or fall. Read this passage and really study it. Don't try to see what your culture sees. Really see what is this saying. Study through the scriptures. And I love what Pastor Timothy Keller says out of New York. He says, I'm willing to debate with you about what is being forbidden here. What I cannot agree with is that nothing is being forbidden here. Right. So clearly there is something being forbidden here. We just need to be able to debate and to have communication about that as a church and decide what that is. Yeah, and again, not taking, you know, just the nearest straw man and saying that that speaks for all of you, just being able to say, what are the arguments both in favor and against this? Are they based on scripture? And is that scripture properly represented? That's the good thing about debate. But if on the other hand, we don't allow that and say you're an apostate and uh, fallen from grace and you're no longer saved if you are sinning in such a manner as to allow a woman to share words in a particular order that coincide with what are written in our Bibles, that sounds silly. On the other hand, you were to say, no, everything in the Bible, it's, it's just a suggestion. There's no real reason for us to be reading it anyway. We should just hear what women have to say, because this is, this is a women's world. We're matriarchists. Okay, beta, that's, that's still making the same mistake. If we want to make sure that we have an informed approach towards the church, let's start with its founder. And if we disagree with him, then that's, well, I guess between you and him. But make sure that when you and how you stand, it starts and ends with the Bible and properly. That's why we come to that conclusion. What yeah, one, one last thing I'll, I'll add to the end of it, because I'm, I'm seeing some female teachers being presented. Once again, uh, we would have nothing wrong with a female teacher. We would Some of these names we'd have problems with, but not right. because they're females. <laughs> not because they're female, <laughs> because of their theology, right? Um, another important uh, point to put on this is, the reason why women are not allowed to hold this role is not because of ineptitude. No. Uh, and Paul makes that very, very clear. When he says she will be saved in childbearing, he's not saying, oh, you know, men are just smarter than women. So why would you want to learn anything from a woman? That's how some Christians have erroneously interpreted this text throughout the ages. But that's actually not it. Paul is 
highlighting a particular role that women have not only in the body of Christ, but also in their own homes. And he's saying that's the most important thing. It's important for women to have this role as mothers in their own homes, as well as a maternal role within the church. And that means that it's more important for them to focus on that than becoming the head pastor. Right. There is a role and a structure within the church that reflects the dignity of the of not only the maternal role, but also the glory of God himself in the triune nature that he holds where each member of the Trinity has specific roles. Right. The father not only did not, but could not take on flesh because of the specific role that the son has within the Trinity. He had to have had the role of being incarnate and dying for our sins. The Holy Spirit couldn't have become flesh. Right. They have their distinctive roles. And because of that, they allow each other to be glorified in the given roles and don't step on each other's toes. Right. So God sets up a structure and a glory and a hierarchy within the church. And we obey it not only to preserve and honor the maternal role, but also to glorify God in his triune nature and show the world. This is what our God is like. He has hierarchy. He has distinctions and roles, and but he does not have distinctions in value or glory. And that's an important distinction. All right, and then to finish up, we got about a minute uh, question that I think we can narrow down to something actually regarding the Bible, uh, regarding the gender of angels. Uh, when it's obviously referring to them primarily as he, there's an example in Zechariah of female uh, creatures, basically, but with storks' wings. And they say, oh, angels. No, oh, that was a vision. And secondly, those weren't visions uh, of good things. Yeah, not really angelic behavior. But uh, on the other hand, we were to say, well, like Satan's, is he male, as he's sometimes portrayed in artwork quite graphically, or female, as he go after women, is because he hates them and so forth. You went a little more into this. We'll recommend the Mother's Day message of 2022. Uh, which was recorded on May 8, 2022, which is available on our YouTube page as well as our website. But to cap this off, it's in Matthew 20, I believe, the Pharisees were asking about divorce and remarriage in the kingdom, uh, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they were responded to with the statement Jesus made that gives us pretty much a carte blanche understanding of gender before the concept of biology. Do you not know that those in the kingdom of heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven? Biology created genders because we reproduce. Angels do not. They don't have genders. There is no male or female genders, and there certainly is no female God. We refer to his father because it's a relational term, and son likewise because he adopted when he incarnated. That's why we have Thank you all for joining us. We look forward to talking to you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.